Legal Toolkit with Jared Correa. With guest, Mark Palmer. The return of What Would Florida Man Do? Holiday Edition. And then, per tradition, we join Jared as he posts bail following the annual Korea Thanksgiving get-together. But first, your host, Jared Korea. Yes, yes. It's the Legal Toolkit Podcast, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to the podcast, my friends. It's still called the Legal Toolkit, even though tools confuse me. And when I see an eclipse, I think, is the sun eating the moon? I'm your host, Jared Korea. Eric Morcom and Ernie Wise are unavailable, so you're stuck with me in my American English accent. I'm the CEO of Red Cave Law Firm Consulting, a business management consulting service for attorneys and bar associations. Find us online at www.redcavelegal.com. That's a lot of W's. I'm the COO of Gideon Software, Inc. We build chatbots so law firms can convert more leads and conversational document assembly tools so law firms can build documents faster and more accurately. You can find out more about Gideon at gideonlegal.com. I'll leave out the W's this time. Now, before we get to our interview today with Mark Palmer of the Illinois Supreme Court Commission on Professionalism about modern legal ethics, yeah, that's the thing, I wanted to take a moment to talk about fast food and your law firm. Michael Keaton's a really good actor, and I've come to appreciate his work more as I've gotten older. I probably saw him in Beetlejuice and Batman first when I was a little kid, and he was good in those two. I will make that three movies if you count the Batman sequels. And I feel like he was really fantastic as the Vulture in the first Spider-Man movie with Tom Holland. Word on the street is that he's filming more scenes for that role for future Marvel movies. I'm pretty excited about that, personally. But you know what? I'm not here to talk about that. One of my favorite Michael Keaton movies, which I think is sorely underrated, is called The Founder. In that movie, he plays Ray Kroc. So Ray Kroc, as you may know, was a self-styled founder, hence the name of the movie, of McDonald's, even though he largely usurped that title from the McDonald's brothers. They were the actual founders, and he bought that business from them in real life and in the movie. In fact, Ray Kroc was kind of a penis in real life, and the movie cleans up his image a little bit, though not all the way. But I'm also not interested in relitigating how much of a dick Ray Kroc was. Michael Keaton, as I said, great in that movie, but the movie itself is really good. Yeah, more to the point of this conversation, at least, is that The Founder is one of the best movies I've ever seen for focusing on the entrepreneurial process. And that can be really instructive for law firms. Among other real-life events that get covered in the film, the fact that McDonald's actually became profitable as a real estate company. Kroc and uh, one of his partners, Harry Sonneborn, created what was called a Franchise Realty Corporation. And that owned the land on which the McDonald's franchises sat. So that created an additional revenue stream because the land would be leased to franchisees and also allowed Kroc to open new restaurants without getting the permission of the McDonald's brothers per their agreement. Just incidentally, McDonald's is still one of the largest real estate companies in the world. They have $28 billion in real estate assets worldwide, separate and apart from the fast food that they sell. Another thing featured in the movie, when it becomes too expensive to store ice cream for milkshakes, because they needed these big freezers and there was a cost of refrigerating all that, Croc decides to use a powder to make milkshakes instead against the wishes of the McDonald's brothers and on the advice of his future second wife, Joan. Joan, by the way, left her husband who was a McDonald's franchise owner for Ray. 
Again, he was kind of a bastard. Next, the movie covers Croc's decision to focus on middle-class franchisees. He started by going to golf clubs and trying to get wealthy investors to uh, own McDonald's franchises, but they didn't want to do anything because they already had money. So he needed people who were willing to work at the building of the local business and who would adhere to the McDonald's philosophy. That's all really interesting stuff in its own right, and those are things that entrepreneurs have to figure out all the time. How do I do this at a lower cost? How do I get people to invest in what I'm doing? This type of thing is pretty common. But I think the best scene in the whole movie, and one that lawyers should pay attention to, is when the McDonald's brothers actually plan out their process, which they call the Speedy System, S-P-E-E-D-E-E. So the brothers in the movie are played by John Carroll Lynch. He's Twisty the Clown from American Horror Story. And Nick Offerman, who you may know from uh, playing Ron Swanson in Parks and Recreation, great TV show. So Croc takes these guys out for dinner and they uh, foolishly, by the way, get an NDA, everybody give up the secret sauce as it were pun intended telling them all about how they built their fast food system that would become an empire. So first they closed the restaurant, which was doing pretty well because they wanted to revise all their processes and start from scratch. Uh, people thought they were crazy. Of course. Then they brought their whole staff to a tennis court and started rebuilding the system from the ground up. So Brother Dick, as the guy who's played by Swanson, uses chalk to map out the kitchen floor plan on the tennis court. And once he's got that floor plan mapped out, he brings on the staff and they pantomime making up fake orders and moving around the imaginary kitchen equipment. That doesn't work very well the first several times. Everybody's bumping into each other. So they keep shooing everybody off the tennis court and Dick starts again. Eventually, they come up with a symphony of efficiency. This is a fantastic clip, and you can watch it on YouTube for free. So with the speedy system in place, the brothers open the new restaurant. To rave reviews? No. The opening is plagued by insects, and no one can actually figure out how to navigate the process. The customers anticipate that the order is going to take a long time to arrive. They don't know that they can just take their order and go. Nobody knew what fast food was at that point. It's a total disaster. But the brothers don't give up, and eventually everybody catches on. And the rest, as they say, is history. Lots of good stuff for law firm owners here, right? Efficiency means more profits. It's okay to stop working for a little bit and think about your business, iterate on the process. Uh, People may not get what you're trying to do at first, but if you believe in the thesis, you should push ahead anyway. Now, you'll hear this statistic that most small businesses fail, and that's true. But tenacity is the real difference between that sort of business and the one that succeeds widely. Now go grab a fucking McRib. They're back. Before we get to our fireside chat, no actual fire will be employed with Mark Palmer, the chief counsel of the Illinois Supreme Court Commission on Professionalism about legal ethics. Let's see what Joshua Lennon has under the heat lamp in this edition of the Clio Legal Trends Report Minute. Did you know that in 2020, over 50% of legal professionals worried about the success of their law firm? To think that over half of the legal service industry has experienced such duress should be raising alarms. I'm Joshua Lennon, lawyer in residence at Clio. The good news is that industry data shows law firms are as busy as ever with new casework. The bad news for most lawyers is that billable earnings continue to be down by 6 to 8%. Clio's Legal Trends Report, based on data from tens of thousands of legal professionals, shows some lawyers have managed to earn $37,000 more than others. What are they doing differently? They've been using three key technologies, online payments, client portals, and client intake solutions. To learn more about these technologies and much more for free, 
download Clio's Legal Trends Report at clio.com forward slash trends. That's Clio spelled C-L-I-O. So let's get to the ranch dressing that sits upon and inside of this podcast. It's time to interview our guest. My guest today is Mark Palmer. He's the chief counsel at the Illinois Supreme Court Commission on Professionalism. Mark, thanks for coming in. Thanks, Jared. I know that's a mouthful and you got it perfect. I was going to say, and you guys, you guys brand that as like too civility online, right? Yes. Probably because of that very reason. Very much so. Early on, you know, our organization's almost 15 years old, and early on, that was a big mouthful, um, uh, both, you know, at delivering education, but even in uh, happy hours and the like, or even trying to introduce where you work. And so the two civility became a, a trademark uh, about eight years ago or so, and, and it's really caught on well. And your whole team over there does a really great job. I like the fact that um, you talk about ethics-related issues, but you do it in a way that's modernized. And you're heavily involved in social media. I like. I think all that's great. And I've, yeah. I've, you guys have been doing that for a long time. So yeah. And our team, our, our team really comes from you know we've been all been practitioners beforehand. So you know we've mm -hmm. worked at the small firms, we've worked at the big firms, we've worked uh, all types of civil, criminal. We've seen it all. So we we hopefully bring that realistic background into the into the equation and deliver back to the to the audience we serve in Illinois and beyond. Hopefully. Well, let's go beyond Illinois today, but also including Illinois. That's what I want to talk to you about. I get attorneys who have ethics questions a lot of the time. And if you go online and you try to find information on legal ethics, it's always like, well, if it's a technology question, you just need to compare it to this non-technology analog we came up with 30 years ago. Where it's like, I found a, an article on point about chat rooms. And it's like, who's used a chat room in the last 20 years? Yeah. Right. <laughs> so... I think you do a great job talking about modern legal ethics questions that lawyers have, like in that context. So I wanted to talk to you about some of those issues today. Absolutely. Let's do it. So I got a lot of questions for you. I frankly don't think we're going to get through them all. So I'm going to reserve maybe a part two at some point. But I know you write articles every now and then for Attorney at Work, which is a publication I write for as well. They do a nice job. One you came out with recently, maybe it's today or yesterday, it was on texting. Yeah. Legal ethics around texting. And I, I get these questions all the time. Like so many lawyers are texting with their clients and they have no record of it at all. It's yeah. like in the ether. So I know that's probably one issue that you'll discuss, but give me your take on texting legal ethics. Yeah. Well, I think the big picture that we always got reminded of is for you attorneys listening, it's like, oh, I've, you've crossed that bridge or you've come very close to crossing that bridge of like, I just don't want to break that seal, that seal of personal communication that's so, it's literally in our pocket 24-7 or literally sitting on our bedstand at night. And you just have that extreme reservation, and rightfully so, to not break that 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 personal barrier. And you're thinking, oh, that's just going to hurt more of my my at home life, and so on. And I'm already doing that too much, paying attention to my phone uh, with emails coming in. Why in the world would I do that with texting, right? <laughs> right. And so the simple answer is, I'm not going to do it. Well, I think the I'm not going to do it answer has come and gone. That's that's not how we serve our clients. And especially if you're going to have high, what I'll call high value clients or high attention clients, people who are repeat visitors, give you big books of business, and also spread the word to help you out, whether you're a solo or small firm attorney, or even at a large organization. So it's just not realistic to say no to it. So when you do this say is yes. This kind of like when people say, 
I'm going to use fax machines because they're now data privacy laws. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> so then it becomes, okay, you've opened the floodgate, let's say, what's next? And I think you made the, the initial point is, the scary point is, oh my gosh, we have all these all this communique. How am I going to paper my file as I know I should? I've been taught for years and years. It's been ingrained in me that I must keep all this, uh, not only keep it confidential, but I must keep a record. We're such great record-keeping industry, at least we should be, and our rules require us to be. How in the world am I going to get it from that picture on my phone to a file, you know. It reminds me of my old, one of my old partner, law partners, when I was in private practice, he still would print out all his emails. And not just <laughs> the original email, but then the subsequent reply to the email. Oh, you got to get the whole thread. Oh, man, it would just, I'd be pulling my head out, walking by his desk and seeing the, the stacks of paper. But, but yeah, but like I said before, Jared, it's very much about applying your model rules of professional conduct or whatever rules you, you adhere to in your jurisdiction, your state, it's not reinventing the wheel. You got the same issues. You got confidentiality, like I mentioned. You got communication. You know, you must keep your client informed, and that's a two-way street. And then you must document it somehow. Like I said, get it from the phone to that. And I think the best answer, frankly, and and we can talk more about this, is is what's an alternative to texting, but to the client, they see it as texting. For example, using, yeah, a, yeah. using a portal, using some type of secure, enclosed communique that you can make that record easily. You can still make the client happy because they're easily accessing you and, and you're doing it in a secure environment at the same time, right? Yeah, so you're talking about client portals there, right? Yeah, big time. Can you talk a little bit about what client portals are and then some of the ethics components? Because I'm I'm not even sure at this point if everybody is listening has used one before or is aware of how they work. Yeah, and they may sound very, simply put, scary. They may sound like, oh my gosh, I don't have the technical know-how to even, I can barely text. How in the world, Mark, am I going to get on a portal? What is this portal world? It sounds, <laughs> sounds like, like some an, Star Trek shit. Yeah, it's the new uh, internet that's coming. You know, I, I keep hearing about these this new internet and new worlds and what am I going to Hopefully put it's on? better than the old internet. <laughs> yeah. <But> go ahead. <laughs> but what isn't? But it, many times you're going to find these already exist. You're probably already paying for partial service or at least an, an optional add-on to what you're doing. If you have any type of client management software, they recognize Yeah, all the case need. management softwares yeah. have it, yeah. Yeah, they recognize that this is where the future is going, and frankly, the future is now, the theme of our wonderful annual tech conference we host in Chicago. Plug, plug, isn't that great? I worked that in. Oh, well done. I'm impressed. <laughs> If you can put that into an enclosed environment where even on the end of the customer, the consumer, to them, it probably can still look as a text coming in, but you have complete control of that communication. It goes not not even by a click of a mouse. Automatically, it's put into their client file. The record is kept. And not only that is, here's what I really like. Automation is such a big part of efficiency and how effective yep. you can serve your clients. If the client is coming to the portal, his or herself, to find information, you may not even know about it. That's the beauty of it. You can update their case. You can upload a, an order that was entered by the judge. 
refer them to it and they can go anytime at their leisure day or night and access that in their secure environment that's the beauty of a portal so it's yep. more than just texting it's more than just emailing it's more than just giving a reminder here's your next court date it's an entirely enclosed two-way traffic information environment and that's how you need to think about it and you know it's an extension of your office and it's all about consumer relations, customer service. That's what you're doing here to win your clients and make them refer you to the next neighbor and friend. I love it when an ethics guy, sorry to generalize you like that, refers I'll to consumer service in any way. Yeah. <laughs> like, the fact that like customer service exists and is a thing <laughs> is important to remember. Let me answer that, Dilger, because what, what I see happening, and you're right on point there, what happens is people say, all right, here's the starting point. Here's how I want to serve my clients. Now let's apply ethical rules to limit that or unwind it or put up barriers or limitations. And no, it should be the opposite. You should start with the ethical rules and figure out how to do it right from the get-go, right? That's a yeah. good generality. Ah, I love it. That, that's so refreshing, Tara. That's why I had you on the show. <laughs> Let's stick with the client thing for a little bit and the consumer service theme, because I actually get this question a ton, and I don't know the answer. Cryptocurrency. Yeah. Like, should law firms be looking at crypto as a payment option? And, and in the first place, can they even take it? Yeah, uh, this is a really weird one, and, and yet it's it's a popular one. And right close to this is is another one that I, I hear often is, is crowdfunding. I think both of these are— Oh, that's a good one, too. Yeah, you can yeah. hit that one as well. Yeah, how are you going to— how are you going to pay for it? And then who can pay for it? You know, those are kind of the two basic questions there. But with cryptocurrency, again, it's taking the traditional rules, the rules that exist and finding, okay, what's going to apply here? And first of all, should I even bother? Is this just going to be kind of a marketing uh, gimmick that I can do <laughs> right, to, right. to to have a purpose to release a press release? How many people are actually paying for stuff with yeah, crypto right now? <laughs> I mean, is this really going on? And you actually see some major law firms, some big law pushing like, oh, we accept that. And they maybe they use that more of a marketing tool. Uh, and maybe it's a realistic option for some some of their clients. But the point being is you still got to look at the rules about, you know, when have you earned a fee versus when have you, when are you holding a fee that's not yet earned? Yep. And how are you following yep. the rules of that? And also, obviously, the, the biggest concern with cryptocurrency is the volatility of the price and the value of it. So you have to always be careful. And this is a strange thing to say, but lawyers, make sure you're not overpaid for your services because that's part of the rules. You have to be clear in, uh, you know, what's that moment in time that that value is being reflected. And I think a lot of these balls are still floating in the air and haven't landed yet on, you know, is cryptocurrency money? Is it property? Are we how are we holding it? Where should we hold it? Some would say it's just a, it's a danger zone not to get into. But like I said, it it's not going away anytime soon. All right, I'm uh, I'm pulling from my grab bag of ethics questions. This all is right. an important one too. I'll do my best. And I know you've covered all these issues. You're an expert <laughs> with the with the whole rise in people working from home, working hybrid. Yeah, there's been a lot of people starting virtual practices, quote unquote, and that's a di it's a different way to work, and it's a different place to be working. Some states, I think, still have bona fide office rules, right? And so can you talk about what that is and how that affects like a virtual practice of law? I think the number one 
thing to remember among all the specific rules in play here, but the main thing to do is what is it from the perspective of the client? And that's that's said of all ethical rules all the time. The main yeah. purpose of ethics rule rules is to protect the client. And so what does that mean? And there's lots of components to virtual offices or working virtual. And they mean different things. It's a very difficult thing to nail down. It's like nailing jello to a tree, as my old boss used to always say. Well, right. A virtual office could be somebody who has like a cloud-based email account. Or it could yeah. be somebody who never sees We've a We've been client. working virtually for years. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But there, but that is different than, you know, me working from Puerto Rico and only being licensed in Illinois. You know, is that legit? Can I do that? Right. Does it matter yeah. where I'm physically seated, where my butt is in a chair? Does that matter on where I'm, and how I'm delivering legal services? And you mentioned, yes, there is an office requirement. What is the what is the actual office? And And some states have recently dropped the office requirement, right? I believe so. And, yeah. and some or some you know, at least require a, there, there's kind of like the, the bona fide registration office requirement, you know, whether it be a PO box or an actual location, there's also a whole nother category of requirements for the, for the advertising rules. And I don't think we're talking about mm. that. That's a whole different category. We'll but do as, that on the next episode. Yeah. But as far as where are you delivering the services? And, and I mentioned in one of the blogs, a great case that really dissects this but it talks about a lawyer that got in trouble from Colorado, I believe it was. And this is all a documented case where he was serving his in-laws in Minnesota. And this mm -hmm. is a very, it was such a very realistic example that I used that in my blog to point out. It's something that any lawyer could very easily get themselves caught up in. And before they know it, they could possibly be committing UPL and authorized practice of law in another yeah, jurisdiction. Yeah, that seems like something almost anybody would do. Yeah, because it's it's so simple. And here, here we are, uh, we're recording this near the holiday season. You know, you, you travel somewhere, you, you spend some time with relatives, and one thing leads to another, they follow up, and they just, I just need a little legal advice about this thing. And turns out this thing is actually pending litigation or, uh, or post-judgment litigation, as it was in this Minnesota case, you know, helping the in-laws settle a debt. Yeah, you can walk that line for a little bit, but then you might you might trip into it a little farther. And that's where you just got to be careful of where it's, again, from the consumer viewpoints, the key there. So in terms of that attorney, let's say, who lives in Puerto Rico, has a license in Louisiana, that mm -hmm. could be possible. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And it, very much of it depends on the type of practice. You know, one of the most popular practices I keep seeing of people who literally travel the world while they practice law seems to be like trademark law or things like that, mm. that you yeah. can, you can handle that. But of course, um, like I was a for, former litigator, a, a litigation attorney, and it's, it'd be near impossible for me to travel the world and still go to court, you know, once a week, I can't do that. But there are transactional types of practices that, that are very conducive of, of remote work and I don't see anything wrong about uh, serving, you know, clients that way. In fact, it, it could even very well argument that, that that's a access to justice solution, having yeah. more more availability of lawyers or legal uh, service providers uh, across literally the world to reduce these needs. I think I think you got a great approach to this. It's you look at the ethics rule, but you've also got a practical viewpoint here in terms of logistics of actually running a practice. You going to stick around for part two? Oh, I'm always here. All right. All right. You said you meet with the relatives and crazy stuff happens, right? Keep that in mind all right. for the next segment. 
We'll take one final sponsor break so that you can hear more about what our sponsors can do for your law practice. Then stay tuned for the rump roast. It's even more supple than the roast beast. Partner with Rankings.io, the marketing agency for law firms that want results, not excuses. With flat rates for Google ads, a track record ranking attorneys for the most competitive terms on Google, and a team always easy to reach by phone, even during off hours, Rankings.io is the agency of choice for firms that want the rankings, traffic, and cases other law firm marketing agencies just can't deliver. Visit Rankings.io for a free consultation and start seeing your firm grow. Contract automation isn't a trend. It's a strategic imperative. Though big players in the e-sign world will make you believe implementing it will cost you big bucks and more than a few headaches, it doesn't have to be that way. DocuB is an easy-to-onboard, full suite of products and includes e-signature, brilliant workflow capabilities, and AI contract automation at nearly half the price of those out-of-touch behemoths. The one thing DocuB doesn't automate? Their customer service. Visit get.docub.com slash contracts to set up a call with a real live person. DocuB will be with you every step of the way. Simplify. With Cosmolex, the only fully integrated practice management solution. Everything you need, accessible anywhere. Trust and general accounting is built in, so you don't need QuickBooks. Cosmolex's Money Finder reminds you to bill for work you put into client matters so you don't leak money. That's messy. Lower cost, better business, and less frustration. Yes, please. It's all built in with Cosmolex. Free trial and... Take 20% off your first year at Cosmolex.com. Welcome to the rear end of the Legal Toolkit. That's right, it's the Rump Roast. It's a grab bag of short-form topics, all of my choosing. Why do I get to choose? Because I'm the host. As uh, Mark referenced, we're recording this the day before Thanksgiving. You'll listen to it sometime after Thanksgiving, and at that point, we'll be knee-deep in the holiday season whichever set of holidays you celebrate. So I wanted to bring back a rump roast segment that's an old favorite. However, I'm going to put a twist on it. We're going to play What Would Florida Man Do? Holiday Edition. Mark, how's that sounding to wow, you? Wow, wow. I My mouth was starting to water talking about Thanksgiving, but now I've kind of, uh, I'm kind of nervous, but I'll do the best <laughs> I can. Don't be nervous. Here's how we're going to do it. I'm going to read off some weird crimes that took place over the holiday season. And Mark, it'll be your job to tell me whether it's a Florida man that committed these crimes or not. So you get a 50-50 shot on each question. I say that's pretty good odds. Yeah, yeah. I've seen some uh, interesting headlines that never disappoint. So this will be a challenge, but I am up for it. Here we go. All right. First one. 2011, a man named Terry Trent took bath salts, walked into his neighbor's house and decorated for Christmas. He lit candles arranged them on the table, brought out coffee, even hung a Christmas wreath on their garage. And then he sat down and watched Christmas movies while playing with toys under the tree. Unfortunately, there was an 11-year-old boy in the house who was surprised to find this man on bath salts who was not Santa and went to tell his mom before the man was arrested. Your question, Mark, is this a Florida man or not? 
I, I'm shocked to say, but maybe not shocked, that this vaguely sounds familiar, Jared. My gosh. This wasn't even, you, was it? No, it was not me. <laughs> um, I actually did study a lot of the early bath salt laws in Illinois and, and across the nation when I was a prosecutor <laughs> because they, they were evolving so quickly because the, every time they'd make one bath salt substance illegal, they'd find a new one because they just, you know, add another atom or something to it. I don't I'm, I'm no chemist. I had no idea you would bring this level of expertise to this segment. This I, is amazing. I, I always surprise people. Um, but uh, this, I would say, yes, this is a Florida man. Uh, Ohio, man. This oh, guy was in Ohio. Man. Good guess though. All right. Let's move on. In 2017, a man stole a baby Jesus from a manger scene. Only this baby Jesus was tricked out with a GPS device. And they found the man and the baby Jesus in his apartment two hours later. Was this a Florida man? (laughs) Don't be out there stealing baby Jesuses. They could have GPS. The the GPS, I think, puts it over the top in this case. Uh, So I'm assuming there was previous thefts of of baby Jesus. And so they were prepared this time. I mean, that's... That seems a logical progression. Yeah. Um, <laughs> this is probably a string of crimes. Yeah. They, I wonder how many GPS units they, if they bought like a multi-pack so they could, you know, tag the donkeys and the wise men at the same time. <laughs> they um, started making them just for yeah. major sets. And I've already, I'm thinking, I'm thinking too deep in this question already. So I'm going to say yes, this is Florida. <laughs> yes. Yes. Florida, man. Nice work. All right. In 2020, a woman reportedly informed her neighbors that she picked out the very best Christmas tree and invited their children over to open presents underneath it. Turned out, it was a giant cannabis plant. Is this a Florida woman? Oh, man. <laughs> <sighs> They're like, oh, man, maybe the tree will burn up if we readjust this light. Yeah. Um, I feel like Florida would have a lot of remote areas for possible growth uh giant cannabis plant yeah where she could harvest such a plant uh and be confused (laughs) you know northern states they would much quickly to recognize a proper spruce um so i'm so i'm gonna have to say yes on this one uh this lady was actually from chile it's a chilean woman uh, Pretty good though. We're, well, we're yeah. two of uh, the logic right that she maybe wouldn't recognize. Uh, okay, <laughs> go ahead. John. All right, you're in position to hit the 500 mark here. Okay, we got one last question. Do All you have I? to say is whether this is a Florida man or not. Here's the last one. In 2012, a family got together for Thanksgiving dinner and settled down for a nice game of trivia pursuit. After a dispute over a question, a woman threatened her relative with a hatchet. Turned out that that hatchet was used for drug paraphernalia, and she was arrested by the police. <laughs> now, I got to tell you, I don't know what you I don't know how you use a hatchet for drug paraphernalia. Like, <laughs> paraphernalia. Are you building, like, a bong out of the hatchet? Are you cutting lines of cocaine with the hatchet? Like, what is actually going on wow. here? <laughs> you just chopped down a cannabis Christmas tree? Um, there you go. Perfect. Yeah, makes sense. <laughs> now, the ultimate question. The hatchet-wielding Truly Pursuit player was this a Florida woman or not? Uh, yeah, again, there's there's an interesting <laughs> mix here of, of issues. And when you have a plus two factor, it's it, the probability goes up for Florida, I think. So I'm going to say yes. No. No. This was another, Sorry. this is a, uh, a Pennsylvania case. Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania woman. Hey, you well. did pretty good, though. And I love the analysis here. I'm really impressed. Oh, wait, I got one more for you, just for you. Okay. Let's we'll, we'll we'll up your percentage a little bit. I think this one might hit home for you. Two burglars named Marv 
and Harry try to rob a home that's defended only by a cagey young boy who just started shaving for the first time. Where were these criminals from? Florida men? Well, this I know is in the <laughs> suburbs of Chicago. So this is a no to Florida. Illinois man. Yes. That's the plot of Home Alone, everyone. All right. Yes. <laughs> Mark, great analysis of these. I really appreciate it. Thanks for coming on. This was a ton of fun. If you want to find out more about Mark Palmer and the Illinois Supreme Court Commission on Professionalism, visit 2civility.org. That's the number two, C-I-V-I-L-I-T-Y.org, 2civility.org. Now, for those of you listening in Goofy Ridge, Illinois, we've got a playlist that's all about food. That prickly old bastard Ray Kroc is probably smiling up at us from hell. So have a listen. Unfortunately, we don't have any footage of me bailing my family out of jail this Thanksgiving, and that's mostly because it's not Thanksgiving yet as we record this. But let's be real. I'd probably be getting arrested along with them. That'll do it for another episode of Legal Toolkit Podcast, where listening to our show is just the right and ethical thing to do. If you're a lawyer running a solo or small firm and you're looking for other lawyers to talk through issues you're currently facing in your practice, join the Unbillable Hours Community Roundtable, a free virtual event on the third Thursday of every month. Lawyers from all over the country come together and meet with me, lawyer and law firm management consultant Christopher T. Anderson, to discuss best practices on topics such as marketing, client acquisition, hiring and firing, and time management. The conversation is free to join, but requires a simple reservation. The link to RSVP can be found on the Unbillable Hour page at LegalTalkNetwork.com. We'll see you there.